Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I won't let my body outweigh Outweigh everything that I'm made of Won't spend my life trying to change I'm learning to love who I am I am strong, I feel free I know every part of me is beautiful And I will always outweigh If you feel it, put your hands in the air Show some love to the mirror while you're there Let's take it one day at a time Cause you and I outweigh So welcome back to Outweigh. Today I have a pretty cool guest with me. His name is Matt Strandberg. And the reason he's pretty cool is because I know him from grad school. Matt and I went to Columbia together. I believe we had the same major, right? You were nutrition and exercise physiology or just exercise physiology? Uh, I was both as well. You were both as well, right? I transitioned a little bit later, so I think I got to know you at the later part of my graduate career. Anyway, Matt is brilliant and has always been. He's always kind of been the person in class who speaks up and says the thing that, you know, kind of goes against me. Nerd alert. (laughs) Nerd alert, but also like uh, very confidently will really look at the literature and come up with your own opinions, which can, you know, go against the grain, especially in a classroom setting when we're being taught. So I always looked to you for, you know, the answers and definitely made the class a little bit more fun. So I'm excited to be talking to you today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So yeah, I didn't expect you to go in the route that you've gone, actually. You know, you were really passionate about exercise physiology And I know you're still passionate about helping people form healthy relationships to exercise, but you ended up going down the eating disorder path professionally, I believe, right? Yeah. 
Totally. And so that's my specialty. And as you pointed out, wasn't really expected. But when I tell people what I do, oftentimes the assumption is, oh my, like, wow, that must be your vocation. You must have like, you know, seen the light and wanted to do this for so long. And, and really it was like, you know, bouncing from thing to thing, experimenting with so many different areas and be like, okay, you know, what interests me? You know, you know, how can I make this work? And really um, I had always had an interest in these topics. And at the same time, you know, when I was graduating my dietetic intern, once again, faced with that existential crisis of oh, going back out into the real world, like now what? And when I was thinking about my experiences, I had a lot of experience in strength and conditioning with athletes. I had experience in nutrition, had experience in counseling. And I'm like, okay, is there a way to put this all together? And so when I looked out there, you know, with the research literature, as well as like in general, you know, I, I found that there wasn't really many resources available for athletes or people engaging in physical activity who maybe were struggling mentally and, and whether it was disordered eating or eating disorder behaviors or their relationship with exercise. And so for instance, like, you know, growing up as an athlete, but also as a coach, you know, you just hang out with so many different people and everyone's there training, but you know, you begin to realize that people are struggling at times. And there's this, always this pressure to put up this image of, you know, I'm fully in control, I'm stoic and, you know, I'm dedicated and I have, you know, handle on everything. And so when things are not going as one would expect, or someone's struggling, really, people will start to feel scared to reach out because they don't want to be perceived as weak, or they don't want to be perceived as less than, or they don't want to be, um, shat you know, shadow this image of, you know, this athlete and then be considered, well, looks like you're struggling. So I don't know if you can uh, maintain your position on the team, you should probably go take some time off. And all of this is just really not conducive to providing a supportive environment. And to make matters worse, a lot of the environments were, were pretty tough toxic in many respects. And that's something that's really kind of not talked about in relation to sports. And so, you know, that really inspired me to try to make a change. And, and that led me to uh, working together with a, a great researcher. Her name is Paula Quachimone. She's at Boston University. And together we came up with the idea of, hey, you know, why don't we actually create a program to help athletes struggling with eating disorders and problematic physical activity. And so the last five years, that's what I did. I, you know, I pitched a program to Walden Behavioral Care called the Goals Program and um, helped lots of different athletes in that program and created curriculums and various initiatives and produced some research back in the efficacy of the program and its methods with the hopes that it would spur some more interest in the area. And, you know, just recently, I've, you know, opened up my own private practice to help people in other areas as well. So it's been a it's been an interesting journey, but eventually I ended up here. <laughs> and it's it's hard because whether you're an athlete or not, you know, I'd say most of our audience, probably, probably a handful of people do resonate with being an athlete or athlete in their past. But regardless or not, I think athletes have that extra pressure of eat healthy, you know, to perform better or whatever. But all of us are really taught that healthy living, it looks like something we can check off on paper or easily quantify, whether it's that number on the scale or certain food choices or regular exercises. And I think it starts for a lot of people that we're doing these things in the name of health. And then all of a sudden, people are hearing, wait a second, your pursuit of healthy eating is actually disordered. And 
when we're just looking at this stuff on paper, right? Like the behaviors, eat more vegetables or move your body every single day. It can be really confusing for somebody to say, well, you told me to do these things to be healthy. How can you be saying that they're dysfunctional? So how, how can this happen? And what are we missing when it comes to our healthy behaviors? Yeah, no, this is a really great question and something that I've thought a lot about because in the past, I was very much that person where I was being told and congratulated and reinforced for certain types of, you know, approaches to exercise and food and body composition and all these different things. And then, you know, was beginning to wonder why I was struggling. And, you know, why, why am I struggling so much if people are telling me I'm doing the right thing? So that was very much a point of confusion. And when I went into the work that I've been doing, you know, it actually is very much actually what I would say the focal point for most people I, I talk to. And so as you had mentioned, like, you know, how the heck do we tell the difference and, you know, what, what's going on? And so in relation to answering this question, I, I think actually it's important to kind of back up a few steps. Um, to really understand kind of what we're talking about and, you know, define, you know, what we're talking about. So the concepts that you've put forth are, you know, healthy and, and healthy is contrasted with unhealthy. And then maybe people will say like what's functional and is contrasted with what is considered dysfunctional, ordered, disordered. So when, when we look at like, you know, what is this way of categorizing stuff, this is very much in a binary and, and kind of like a dualistic way of thinking. So there's a, you know, there's a definition of something. And then the reason why we know it is something is because it's contrasted with what it is not. And, and, you know, this is kind of a baseline level thinking for, for most individuals when they come into the world, like we come to the world and people talk about what is safe or unsafe, edible versus inedible. So just from the start, in many instances, you know, culture communicates the, you know, what is desirable versus what's not desirable. And, and that guides us in our day to day. And so like in the past, you know, this would be like the local elders in the village or the religion or the state or various authorities, such as like the, the father in the household. And, and they would define, you know, what is a good Christian? What is a good citizen? You know, what's a good son, a good daughter, good wife? This is right. That's wrong. And, you know, this has been very much drilled into our day to day that it almost appears natural as if it's a reflection of reality. Now, you know, thinking about, you know, how this relates to our current situation, it's also important to kind of look at the development of these ideas. And so, for instance, like science in the post-Enlightenment, you know, after the 18th century, was very much thought to help like elucidate the, the truth about the world and demystify and personal opinion and intuition and religion. These are subjective kind of touchy-feely things, and they're not based in science. And so if we adhere to scientific principles, then we can really understand what's going on. So part of this was actually applied to very much like every topic, including humans themselves. So when we think about, you know, Darwin and, you know, theory of evolution, some people begin to think about this as like fitness in terms of evolution. And some people took that even further and said, well, you know, maybe we could actually improve the human race if we understood what the ideal human would look like. And, and then from there, we can now categorize humans based on superior humans versus inferior. Now, at the time, this is very popular thinking. And, and now we would say, you know, this is eugenics, you know, this is very much, you know, shady and, and, and not really something that we want to reinforce. At the time, though, uh, the Nazis, the communists, but also lots of American scientists and the American um, establishment uh, very much adhered to these ideas. And, and this actually is, you know, where we have the origin of dietetics in many respects. Dietetics was originally called home economics. How do we view food in a way that is economical so we can help 
help optimize the human and optimize the diet. And then from there, we can create an ideal workforce. And so we have these ideas emerging at the turn of the century that conceptualize humans as machines. And then we also conceptualize them as machines that are imperfect, that could be analyzed, reduced into individual components, and then rebuilt um, and restructured through ideal diets, ideal exercise, ideal medications, ideal you know, environments. And we could socially engineer you know, the ideal worker, the ideal soldier, and then the ideal societal machine. Now, you know, Nazism, communism, and eugenics kind of faded out of the picture, but a lot of these ideas regarding fitness have very much remained the basis of how we conceptualize health. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about it, you know, from a public health standpoint, public health and like the scientific management of the population examines everyone and then categorize them as such and create these various categories like BMI, blood work, dietary patterns, exercise patterns. And, you know, from American psychology, how do we systematize, you know, the human psyche into understanding what is mentally healthy versus mentally ill? And similar to, you know, what I mentioned before in terms of this has not always been the case, this was not always the case. And at the same time, because it was very much repeated over time and, and constantly ingrained into our psyche, these categories that were based in, you know, these um, conceptions of biology and conceptions of psychology became naturalized to the point where now we think of the world in this way, in many respects, that, you know, that these categories that were devised over time are actually reflections of reality. And, you know, another question that we want to ask when we talk about what is defined as healthy or functional is like, is this actually a reflection of reality? Or is this sign of like what the society values? Mm -hmm. So for instance, is it a sign of health to be well adjusted to a sick society that constantly, you know, views the, the individual as merely in, you know, a machine, you know, who is supposed to control themselves, espouse, you know, rationality and be obsessed with productivity and self-governance, trying to obtain a particular body and a perfect way of eating to check all these various boxes. And so, you know, I'll pause right there, but essentially this is stuff that's talked about that is just naturalized, but in many respects, mm -hmm. it, it's missing a lot of different factors that we can really go into on a deeper level to yeah. help elucidate, you know, what do we make of this? These are obviously more intellectual conversations than we've had on this podcast before. And certainly the framework of looking at history, it's very interesting to really see how it came from, what it came from, the cultures it came from, and some of the different ways that that we've come to view what is fit, meaning, you know, survival of the fittest. And that first sentence you said really struck me is people were trying to survive and they qualified or quantified what a body type looks like that would survive. But the truth is the times have changed. We live in much more modern world. You know, we've expanded our lifespan without having to fight off animals to survive, you know? So our idea of what health looks like or can be quantified wasn't really updated, even though the way we live and the way we think and the way we behave has. So I think that's super interesting and definitely allows us to expand out that black and white that you talked about between, you know, is this healthy or is this dysfunctional? It's not black and white. It's why are we doing this? What are we thinking about? What is our motivation? What other things are kind of missing there? The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, 
and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In relation to, you know, how can we relate to this to our lives, the, the frameworks that have been presented to us as deemed functional and healthy are often reflections of what society values in relation to what is considered acceptable or desirable. And so, you know, going back to the fitness category, it actually, in many respects, reflects what the conception was of creating, quote unquote, you know, a, a fitter population in terms of, you know, ability to compete on, you know, this huge scale. So for instance, like, how can we have the ideal worker? How can we have the ideal soldier? And, and that is constructed in relation to health is primarily, you know, a function of one's ability to function within um, the framework that society values. Now, that being said, as I mentioned before, this is often conflated as this is the objective reality. So when we look at like these values of, you know, understandings of research that relate to weight and, and biometrics and, you know, dietary patterns and exercise patterns, these are archetypal 
uh, or like patterns that essentially describe predictions or describe observations, and we can relate them to lots of different things. But it would be a mistake to view these maps as the territory. So, you know, these are maps that help us navigate various things and um, relate them. But that doesn't mean it's the actual territory itself. So, you know, how do we actually deem what is healthy or functional? The way we do this in terms of what works for the person is to sit down with the individual and to actually get to know them and and understand, you know, what their values are, what, you know, how do they think about the world? How do they conceptualize? How do they feel? How do they experience? And how do the, you know, the multidimensional aspects of their life relate to each other? So for instance, something that's talked about a lot is, you know, healthy eating, this, that, blah, blah, exercise, but not many people talk about social connection and the meaning that they have in their life and, you know, how they approach and think about food and how it's felt and experienced. Most people want to just break it down into simply just numbers. And it's like, you know, what's the lab value, how much saturated fat, as opposed to, you know, do you sit down and relax and like have a nice conversation with someone when you eat? And like, how does this relate to the other values in your life? And, you know, you're thinking about losing weight. And at the same time, how might this affect your relationship with food? Like, there's lots of more nuance that can only be really fleshed out if you get to know someone on an individual basis. The problem is this isn't really easy to systematize across the population if you're looking at it from like a a bureaucratic managerial standpoint. Right. But when, you know, you do work with athletes or you've worked with athletes in the past, and I think they're such an interesting population just because they quote unquote, look like the healthiest, the fittest, what we've come to deem as the goal for every human to become in some way. But when you talk to these individuals, how do they describe their emotional experience despite being quote unquote healthy. I think something, and this can also relate to eating disorders as well, is, you know, there's a difference between, you know, the, the behaviors that we're doing versus kind of what we're experiencing on the inside as well. And, and how all these various aspects relate. And so in many respects, the system that, you know, the, the managed healthcare system, but also sports as well, very much emphasizes, you know, what is called like procedural authenticity, where essentially how does one's actions essentially relate to like external values or external, you know, boxes that we can check that signify a particular concept. Um, And not many people really think about, you know, other aspects such as, you know, epistemic authenticity, where, you know, you know, what that means is essentially is like how this relates to your internal experiences and your intentions and how you're experiencing this. And so a lot of athletes check a lot of quote unquote, the boxes in terms of what is considered healthy and desirable and functional. And in many respects, no one sits down and actually asks them, you know, what their subjective experience is like, as well as their intersubjective experience in terms of how they relate to other people. And that right there opens up a lot of, you know, uh, potential avenues for exploration because no one really digs deeper. They look at the image or the representation and never say, how does this feel for you? You know, how is this experienced? How does this relate to the other aspects of your life? And when you have those conversations, you get to see the difference between what someone's doing versus how they're experiencing it and how it relates to the other aspects of your life. But specifically, tell me, what is their emotional experience? How do they describe it? When I'm sitting down with an individual, they're checking all the boxes, you know, they're winning the awards, they're doing all this stuff. And in some respects, they feel proud and they feel 
may be good about that. And at the same time, the way that they've achieved that is through these in, intense repression of their feelings. And similar to like a boogie board, like, you know, at the pool, like you push the board underneath the water and it just ends up flying you up, you know, and hitting you back in the mm -hmm. face. A lot of the athletes I work with are constantly feeling torn and, and stuck in these contradictions. And like, you can see this in terms of um, they're getting patted on the back uh, to, to win the award. And at the same time, they're feeling depressed, anxious, and suicidal because their mental health has been, uh, you know, they, they've been anxious and isolated for so long and, and, and they feel like they have to constantly suppress their feelings. And so there's this deep emptiness or deep sadness that, you know, I hear, but like, who am I if, if I'm not winning? Am I allowed to feel sad or is this a form of weakness? You have these contradictions when I'm working with like football athletes or mixed martial arts mm -hmm. where in one mode, they're supposed to be ultra violent and, and hurt the other person as much as possible. And then just like that, they're supposed to snap their fingers and transition out and all of a sudden no longer feel angry. And, and now they're supposed to integrate, you know, into a society that is nonviolent. And so you just, you see just so many internal conflicts across the board. And oftentimes, unfortunately, similar to the military people I work with or people, you know, in the police force, athletes often conceptualize their emotions as, as weaknesses or as barriers to success and often kind of overemphasize rationality as a means of guiding them and over, you know, controlling their emotions. But usually what this leads to is people suffering for prolonged periods of time and thinking that it is a failure of their personal will, a failure of their rationality, and they shouldn't be feeling this, but eventually, you know, people can only take so much and it really takes its toll. You know, we don't get to really hear about men a lot on this podcast and we get a lot of listeners that do inquire about their significant others or their sons or their brothers. And, you know, the assumption is that eating disorders are way more common in women in the U.S. And as a male, I assume that you attract male clients who might feel more comfortable with you. Perhaps, perhaps not. Do you find that this is really true? Are eating disorders more common in women? In terms of the research, the research is is fairly limited in relation to eating disorders. And it often asks questions that don't really necessarily capture kind of like, you know, what's going on. I mean, this is still you know, a challenge that is very much laden with a lot of stigma. So it's unlikely for people to show up and say, oh, by the way, yeah, I know I'm experiencing all the stigma and I'd love to participate in this research study. This is already present in women and it's way more present in men who really have, you know, in our country, in many respects, you know, mental health services and, and talking about, you know, therapy, talking, you know, having conversations about your feelings uh, is, is not something that is really promoted up until kind of like recently, really, where athletes and people in the military are coming forward, you know, and saying, you know, I, I'm struggling. And so the research doesn't necessarily capture the full picture. So looking at the research, yes, it shows a higher degree of prevalence in women compared to men. That being said, um, it really is unknown and, and there, you know, it's likely a significant underestimate. And then also, you know, a conversation for another time is uh, the constructs that, you know, kind of uh, map out what is considered disordered or, you know, uh, in eating disorder, et cetera, might not fit um, well within uh, how men um, or just people in general from a wide variety of backgrounds might experience these mm -hmm. areas. And because they quote unquote don't fit nicely into a box, they won't be 
essentially identified by research tools. So the, the standard answer would be, yes, it's more prevalent in women. And at this, the realistic and you know probably more real answer is that we don't really know. And that a lot, I meet a lot of people in the, in, and see a lot of things. And I would say that more people are suffering than the research captures. For sure. And that's kind of what we wanted to hear more, your personal experience. Obviously, we can't reflect that into a hard fact. But you know, I think all of us in our own experience can kind of see that men can easily silently suffer and oftentimes not know that they're suffering. Just like many women here were in pursuit of health and found their way towards orthorexic tendencies or disordered eating in some way and didn't know that could be a cause of suffering until, you know, this podcast for many people opened their eyes to say, you could have disordered eating. It's normal that you feel this internal disarray. Something doesn't feel right, even though you look right on paper. So I feel like I'm very hopeful that the next wave of conversations around eating disorders and disordered eating are going to bring men into the picture so that they know that they also don't just have to be, you know, tough guys and those those stereotypes that you were talking about. And they too are allowed to have softness and imperfect diets and they don't need to be the strongest or the, you know, the bulkiest at the gym, all that stuff. Yeah, totally. And, and so like, you know, similar with the stuff I've been talking about, you know, men have various constructs that have been constructed over time to emphasize certain qualities and de-emphasize other qualities. And, and in many respects that has been really harmful. And, you know, for instance, uh, privileging rationality over emotion and privileging stoicism over intimacy and uh, has really left a lot of men uh, with incredibly dysfunctional relationships with themselves and others and not really sure why. There are so many times in my life where I've been around men who say things that if the, those exact words came out of a female's mouth, I would flag it immediately as disordered eating or an eating disorder. And when men say it, we just kind of brush it off. Is there a way to help men to see differently without getting them defensive, to get them to start thinking about their relationship to food without belittling them or making them feel like there's something broken? Yeah, totally. And I think actually this applies beyond men and applies to everyone in general, where first and foremost, the first key is to establish trust and rapport and get to know them as a person. Um, and, you know, and that's the problem with all these DSM-5 diagnoses and, the, you know, all this different stuff is it doesn't, it removes a lot of the personal elements and the personal elements are really, you know, what is needed for people to explore uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, emotions, and sensations. You know, people want to feel heard. They want to feel witnessed. They want to feel understood. They want to feel safe. They want to feel that they can trust you. And so I think the first step would be to talk to them as an, as a person and, and, and get to know them and, and, and listen and actively listen and, and build trust and build rapport. And then from there, you know, once you have a good relationship with someone, instead of, you know, saying, Oh, this is disordered or like that's concerning, whatever you mm-hmm. can, you can say like, how do you feel about it? You know, I, I noticed that you were really upset the other day when this didn't happen, you know, what was going on for you and, and, and approaching it in a curious and inquisitive exploratory manner and and not necessarily seeking an outcome opens the door for people to start to share and and because it's you know so difficult for so many people and since it's like 
you know, behind so many different walls. And also, in addition to that, it, it, it might even be very threatening in many respects to, you know, what they perceive as, you know, kind of like the, the things that hold their house up, you know, the, those supports. Mm-hmm. If we approach it as a problem, it's going to elicit a lot of defense. And if we approach it with the assumption of true or false, it's kind of a matter of perspective. However, if you get to know someone and you start to explore and you notice things and you're like, hey, you know, and how it relates to other aspects of their life, Asking questions and and being there as a support without judgment allows them to start exploring these things. And then when the time is right, you can ask for permission and say, you know, would you be open? Like it's, you know, for instance, I've noticed that you're feeling really upset about your body or feeling really upset about food or exercise. And, you know, I have some thoughts if you'd be open to hearing it and then you say no. And then you go, okay. I hear you. And then you just move on and maybe bring it up another time if, if it's warranted. But if they say yes, you can say, well, you know, I actually know some people who might be able to help explore those those areas because it, it you know it makes me sad seeing you suffer so much or it makes me sad seeing you struggle with you know your relationship with food or feel so stressed about the gym and and I'm wondering if you'd be open to exploring that with someone who could help you navigate those areas and if they say no like okay I hear you you know I'm here as a support but if you say yes now you have an opportunity to like you know introduce and explore like would you be open to listen to a podcast like you talked about or would you be open to read a book would you be open to talking to someone and if you do it very much in a non-judgmental non-confrontational manner and coming from a place of empathy and you know kindness and being gentle i mean that can really shift uh the overall experience and allow them to uh, make their own choices that work best for them and you can be there as a support that you know whether they say yes or no you're always there to support super helpful and i think that's kind of the first step we all need to proactively take to let the men in our lives know that they are heard, seen, and valid. And no better way, I think, like even just hearing these tools from you, they feel so implementable. Like I feel like I really could walk into a situation where I'm around either a loved one or not and really handle it differently because rather than see it as a problem that I need to fix, right? Because that's we kind of jump the gun, especially those of us who are in our own recovery. We think, oh, we know the answer. Let me speed it up and get them there. We need to bring patience and curiosity and allow for them to go through the stages essentially that we went through, <laughs> which is often, you know, denial, not ready. And sooner or later, those introspective wheels start turning and things come together. So don't be let down if your first try at speaking to a male in your life, or if you are a male, if your first try at getting through this stuff is more difficult than you imagine that it would be, right? Those different constructs of what we need to heal may be different for different sexes in theory. Yeah, totally. And essentially, if, if you're there and they know you're non-judgmental and you're supportive and you respect their individual autonomy, they'll feel a lot more comfortable likely to come back when they are ready and say, hey, I thought about what you said, and I think I'd like to t- start talking. And that might take days, weeks, months, years. But if they know <laughs> that you're there, you know, yeah. you might be the first person they talk to and they feel that they can trust you and help start that path. And so I think that's something worth trying. Awesome. I agree. Thanks so much for your time. And the good news is we're going to have you back on for another episode where we talk about exercise addiction, what it looks like, and how we can really change that conversation. So thanks for today. And we'll see you real soon, Matt. Sounds great. Hey, 
Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.